out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we'd love a special guest. This week it's going to be the turn of Andy Preboy, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, etc., etc. He was the lead singer of the Wall of Voodoo, which was from 1983 to 1988, and has also been part of uh, releasing a new live album from that period, titled The Lost Tapes, Volume 1. Hopefully there'll be more. So I'll give you the link in the notes below. But went on to have a prolific career in music. Also wrote the amazing song Tomorrow Wendy, which was covered by The Concrete Blonde, which was amazing. But um, yes, I'll I'll put his website in the link below. But um, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Andy, it's over to you. I had uh, a number of uh, musical awakenings. The first thing is, you can't see it right here, but is the 1914 uh, player piano that my family bought. Uh, They got themselves into Hawk and bought a new house because we were living in a basement apartment. And the first thing they bought was was a player piano uh, that played, you know, plays roles that you pump. And back then, and this was 1964, I mean, of course, the Beatles were all coming out in the Rolling Stones. It was like the set. It was just the the whole world to me went color with all that. But the first thing that had influence was this player piano. And at the time, you could buy piano rolls for 300 for a dollar because this was just dead tech. They were basically practically giving these pianos away. So I was raised with not only the Catholic Church and the, the uh, liturgical music, which was just fantastic, uh, all the incense and the bleeding people, just unbelievable pageantry. Yeah. Uh, uh, we had this player piano, and I'm, I'm learning all these songs from 1914, 1910, uh, and they were just fun to play. And the lyrics go by and you can sing along. You could play them really fast. You can turn them around and play them backwards if you know what you're doing. And the neighborhood kids would come by and we would just have a, a ball singing these old stupid songs like Lonesome is Gallantown. And, and again, as because it was a, 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 a city full of immigrants working in the steel mills, we had Polish songs. We had Irish songs. We had just this plethora, plethora of piano rolls. And then, of course, there was, uh, at the time, you know, 1964, it was like just two radio stations bombarding you with the Rolling Stones and the Who and the Beatles and the Kinks. And just, it was like the 50s. Like I said, it's like the world went from black and white to color, Mm. uh, 1963, 64. Um, So as we went on, my brother got a job as a paper boy and started buying Victrolas and gramophones, uh, which again, you could buy for, for, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks, $10, because it was just dead tech that nobody wanted. And all the old people in this town found out that my brother was buying Victrolas and said, oh my God, if you like that, I have all these old records. Why don't you take them? So we had stacks and stacks and stacks of 78 RPM records growing up. Um, and I think at one point my brother and I have a, this is my twin brother, Joe. We had, he had four or five Victrolas, gramophones, 
uh, old uh, Atwater Kent radios. We're we're we weren't we're really he we just love this stuff. And again, we had a large uh, uh, population of of African Americans who had migrated up north to work in the steel mills when the Mississippi River flooded in the 1920s. So there's that aspect of music that we had on 78s, Chuck Berry and and Fats Domino on a 78 RPM uh, record played with a steel needle. Just that's the way this stuff was cut to be heard because it was, you know, back then, 55, there was a lot of, you know, uh, not everything was stereo. Not everything was, it was pretty primitive still when that stuff came out. Um, so that stuff sounded unbelievable. And then there were all these old vaudeville tapes, these old uh, uh, recordings, these uh, 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 Polish songs, uh, uh, liturgical Slovak hymns, just all this stuff. And here's the thing about people. And it's still to it, you still see it today. They get rid of the technology, but they cannot bear to part with the records, with, mm. the, with the actual music. My wife in her her uh, office has a stack, a, just a, a skyscraper of CDs, and we don't have a CD player. But getting rid of those, you just it's just hard to throw that out. Same thing for in the uh, 80s, same thing with with vinyl when everybody was getting rid of vinyl. I mean, getting rid of stereo systems like that. People still held on to the records, thank God. And it was the same thing with uh, uh, the 78 RPM records. These old people would say, oh, come on, let me let me show you what we got. And we'd, we'd go, oh, my God. Yeah, take them. You like them, please. We want to give this to somebody who likes us. This happened over and over and over again. So I had all this stuff coming in, and I loved, loved the sound of old orchestras on uh, uh, 78 RPM because it really sounds like the voices of the dead. And the further back in time you go, uh, the better it sounds. Um, uh, like one of my favorite music hall singers is Harry Champion. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Harry Champion from the British Music Hall, who sounds like a cannon when he sings. He can barely, he goes flat a lot, but he's really funny. And they're all performing without the benefit of an electronic microphone. It's yeah. just all delivery, just all power. And they have to hit the back of the hall with their voice. So I, you know, I'll I'll lie in bed at night with the headphones on, and I'll listen to uh, pre-world, basically pre-electronic microphone recordings to listen to how these people are breathing and delivering uh, their their uh, their their lyrics, the melodies, and it's 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 just a great education for me as a singer. So anyway. Are you following me? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you 100. percent No, because I was also because I remember the musical period. And there was a woman that was really famous, and I keep thinking, God, what was her name? When you were so talking about musical British musicals, which, um, yes, it's just kind of passed me by. And I begin, I think it begins with M, but that's just I'm just slightly being irrelevant here. But it's it's like you know, there was people like Little Titch who had oh, Little Titch is unbelievable. I got some recordings of Little Titch. He's just what a delivery. And have you ever seen the 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 uh video of him on YouTube performing? Yes, his, I his do. It's news? it's kind of, so oh, I was God. just kind of yeah, musical. There was just one British woman that I just remember everybody loved intensely. There was a there was a historian called Alan 
Andrew Marr, who who sort of really who did a brilliant series on that kind of period, and and it was just fascinating. But um, I didn't think we would be talking about musical stars, so I haven't kind of my brain hasn't quite woke up to it. Well, so you know, I was just saying as as a as a um, uh, uh, teaching device. I'm, I'm, you know, I had a really long day yesterday. I'd started at three a.m. and ended at. 2 a.m. today, so I'm a, I'm a little wonky. If you hear me stuttering and, and uh, having problems choosing my words. Yes, that, I just found out it was Mar- Mari Lloyd. That was the woman who was kind oh, of a... Yeah, 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 yeah. She was yeah. our big, big kind of like the Madonna of the time or, yeah. you know, Adele. Well, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I just use it to listen. I mean, I love their performances, uh, um, but also to listen to uh how there's how they're breathing how they're phrasing uh george roby who's kind of who i find his delivery just absolutely uh, uh crystal clear so you know for me as a singer what are you gonna do when the when the power shuts off that's always in the back of my mind when when wall of voodoo the last time we played london all our gear died all our computers died and we had to go out there and keep performing. So what are you going to do? And this has happened to me a number of times on stage where the mic goes out, the power goes out, and you're standing there with a dead microphone. What do you do? And that's where you you really draw on your ability to breathe and project, and you go right back to uh, uh, um, Harry Champion, uh, 1914, uh, singing boiled beef and carrots and just try to hit the back of the room. So yes. anyway, that's, that's. And were, that's and, were your, and were your parents, were they musical or artistic? Did they give you sort of a, a sort of encouraging sort of childhood yeah. on this front? My, my mom played uh, 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 piano. She loved opera. She loved classical music. My dad had a really, really pretty voice. Uh, he was out of his mind and really dangerous, but he sang very well. Uh, he, I don't know how to, how to explain this real quick. Um, one day out here in Malibu, Malibu is really, really quiet and you get really used to it. And when you start hearing noise, you kind of think, uh oh, it's it's somebody's somebody's causing somebody's causing trouble. Yeah. I started I started hearing like music and I started getting agitated, really agitated. And my wife said, she goes, what's wrong with you? Why are you so agitated? She, she said, what did you, did you have people like that on your, uh, by your house when you were growing up? Did you have people like that on your block when you were growing up? I said, we were those people on the block. Right. We, we were my dad, crazy cop, fallen ball player, former ball player, bought a giant stereo system in 1959 and I think he was one of the first people to blast music really effing loud in America because nobody was blasting music that loud back then. And he would just play all kinds of stuff really loud and laugh maniacally. And, you know, right. That, that, that's that's kind of a quite a disturbed childhood then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very disturbed. And and. Um, uh, but you know he played great stuff, uh, uh, African folk music, uh, Broadway musicals, uh, you know other stuff. I don't care to go into, but yeah. Uh, so there was always, always music, and sometimes music was very smooth and soothing and healing. Like when my mother would play, 
uh, uh, classical music. And sometimes it was terrifying because, you know, if dad is playing the stereo, if dad is playing, I got you, babe, at three o'clock in the morning on a school night, you know, there's going to be trouble. You yes. know that things are. So I learned, you know, uh, 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 through the Catholic Church, the, the, the pageantry and 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 blood and sacrifice. I learned from my mother the 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 uh, soothing uh, healing of 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 uh, complicated classical bits. And then I learned that music can also be very terrifying. And yes. Did he did he did he ever play Screaming Jay Hawkins then? Did he ever have uh, he didn't no he was like a guy from you know he was raised in the uh you know he was a teenager in the 40s. So he played that crud which i really really a lot of it really kind of hate that uh uh kind of that kind of crap uh but he also started going through a midlife crisis uh in his early 30s in the 60s and then started playing like 60s music like uh a lot of joan baez uh a lot of sunny and Cher for some reason so like when i hear I got you, babe. There's a part of me kind of going, ah. uh, but I loved it too, you know? Um, so he kind of played like, he didn't play like the really, really fine stuff aside from Joan Baez, but yeah. you know, kind of 60s stuff. And then my parents got divorced, thank God. And then that was all over. Yes. Did he? Because because one thing you mentioned, you know, I think probably before we started was the, you know, the interest in the UK. Did he was he in the did he come to the UK during the Second World War? Was he stationed over here? No, on... he was, no, he didn't graduate high school till 48. He missed he missed the war. Right. He missed that period, didn't oh. he? So oh, but, you, but, but during the 60s, then you were sort of growing up and there was obviously you were getting quite conscious of that period of the the changing of the kind of, I suppose, from 65 oh. to 67, that technicolor psychedelic well, period. Plus, you know, I was at that age. Uh, uh, you're born in 64. I'm born in 55. So I'm nine years older than you. Did I do the math right? You did. Oh, man. I, my wife is going to be so proud of me. She'll be pleased. Uh, um, so I'm still seeing it from the eyes of a nine, 10 year old, which is very impressionable, very, very perceptive to, um, just very, very perceptive towards the changes around them in a way that adults are not. So it makes a huge impression on you when you're sitting there, uh, in, at a, some kind of family gathering and everybody's watching, uh, Ed's. Sullivan and the Beatles come on for the first time ever. And the reaction of the adults was just horrified, horrified. Like they were all saying they look like women and they're, they were just, and you know, all the little kids were like, Oh my God. Oh my God, look at this. And the next day in school, that's all anybody could talk about. And everything changed. And I'm still, I'm saying I'm nine and 10. I mean, really, what do nine and 10 year olds, how do they change? I mean, it's not like, but still just, just everything changed. Just the new, a whole new perception. Here's something that's ours. And the greatest thing I always said, the greatest thing the Beatles ever said was, yeah, we're self-taught. And for that old school of show business, how can that be? These guys don't even know how to read music. And we're like, all everybody went 
Yeah, great. I don't have to take <laughs> lessons. I can just teach myself and be like this. And you see that our whole society since then has just changed to accommodate that, I think. I mean, our whole yes. world has, has changed to accommodate that. And that's because that first generation of teenagers and kids saw that and went, this is absolutely freeing because up to that point, it's like, well, if you're going to be in show business, you got to learn how to dance and you got to learn how to speak and you got to learn how to stand and you got to learn how to act a little bit and, and do a little bit of comedy, a little bit of tragedy. You got to learn how to sing those smooth songs. It's like lessons, lessons and lessons and lessons. And the last thing that I ever wanted to take was lessons, but to teach myself that is, was just a, a miracle. It was just, yes. that, was, you- that was, Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, but then you would have started to have had those kind of people that you loved, some of them and and other people you would have liked vaguely. But, you know, the the period where people, you know, like Brian Jones dies, then Jimi Hendrix, Morrison, Joplin. I mean, that, that that's all kind of when you're hitting 15 and the and this kind of the 60s finish on a real downer and the 70s appear. How how did you sort of cope with suddenly that amount of reality? Because luckily for for people like myself, you know, it was John Lennon was the first person who I suppose died that I went, wow, but that was 1980. And then, you know, years go, then someone else dies. And then, oh my God, Lou Reed's died. Oh my God. That's... But you're thinking on one level, you think we've been really lucky because, but you would have suddenly had three, four major people died as long as well as the assassinations of presidents. And, yeah, so, you was, know. Yeah. You know, that's a really, really good point, David, is at that time, there was so much unexpected death. I mean, with Martin Luther King and the Kennedys and uh, a number of other uh, assassinations around the world. Um, and then this, then, then the Manson thing happened. Did the uh, Brian Jones, I think was the first, right? Yeah. That was just, you know, it was hard for us to, to get our heads around the, the fact that Brian Jones was no longer in the Rolling Stones. It's like, how can you, how can you have the Rolling Stones without, without Brian Jones? That's, you know, and again, this is teenagers thinking, you know, this is as an adult, you go, yeah, well, you know, that's, that's the way the cookie crumbles. But as a kid, you're like, no, no, this is, this is written, written in stone that this is what a band must be. It cannot change. How can they get rid of a band member? And then he's gone. And then he, 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 he dies. And that's just, it was just, it was almost unfathomable, unfathomable, excuse me. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, but, but, then, but then the following year, you know, you do have Manson, you do have, you know, and then the death of these other three, which is like, wow, that's not a good, and then Altamont, and then, you know, this kind of period where the Beatles break up, and the 60s must have been like, oh dear, that's that's not good. Well, but it's it was it, at that point it seemed like all part of the whirlwind, you know, with with the Vietnam War, with Manson, with Altamont. It's like you begin to realize that this this um, this idyllic adventure is fraught with danger, and you begin to. It's just more like being in the hurricane that you're you're facing. It's just this insane stuff that's going on. You're not. You don't even really have time to ponder. Because it's going by you like that, like the world is today. Um, and after a while, it just begins to be like, uh, by the time um, Janis Joplin died, it's like, yeah, that's the way this all works out sometimes. You know, we are, n- nobody ever knew what, what life with um, 
that kind of uh, uh, um, calendar, that kind of, oh God, I'm sorry, hold a second. Will you edit this out if I need to pause? Yeah, sure. I, well, I could even hit pull. I could even hit sort of pull. <laughs> yes, have a have a drink. But 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 were you at this stage? Were you in San Francisco? Oh God, no. Uh, you can put me back on. Okay, I got you. Oh no, no, no. When uh, all these people were dying, I was still stuck in. Hold a second. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Just a minute. Can you? I'll do. Um, So there you go. Magic. Right. Ask me the question again. Yes. Oh, yeah. So I mentioned you were you in San Francisco at this point and you said new. No. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, I'm still in high school at this point. I'm still 16, 17, 18 years old. I'm living in a steel mill, uh, carcinogenic little steel mill town called East Chicago, Indiana, in a little section called the harbor at the base of Lake Michigan. Uh, and this is where all the immigrants throughout the uh, early part of the 20th century came to work in the steel mills and make a new life for themselves. Uh, the first thing anybody tells you when you get cognizant there is get the hell out of here. Get an education, get an education, kid. Get out of here. You don't want to be here. So it was dirty, uh, dangerous, um, really, really blue collar. You know, the idea of art and literature and you know, higher forms of music was a little, you know, you, you know, these guys will tell you all life is, is going to work. That's what life is. Raising a family, going to work. That's what you got to do. So it was, a, it was a tough steel mill town. My dad was a policeman there. Uh, he was a juvenile cop. And with a name like Preboy, that kind of sticks out. When somebody would hear my name in the park, other kids would come running and go, your dad, the cop? Like, yeah, yeah. So, you know, get pushed around. It was it was interesting. But anyway, so yeah, no, I'm not in San Francisco yet. No, uh, no. But then when you get to 16, do you stay to school or do you go to college or do you leave? Uh, 16, you still stay in school for another two years. Uh, what do you what do you call your high school uh, there? Well, I suppose we call it sixth form. You know, we have sixth form where you sort of do your A-levels. You have O-levels when you're 16, A-levels when you're 18, then you go to university or college or something like that. Yeah, um, with, us, with us, it's just four years between, um, I, the, the ages will be better, from like 14 to 18, 13 to 18. Those Those four years, you stay in high school. And I went to a Catholic high school and, you know, you know, uh, just uh loving all the all the music some of the music that was out i mean i joined my first band when i was in uh high school and these guys were all into uh this new band back then called black sabbath um which was fun for about a year because it was you know it, it was sort of like uh predated punk rock because it was so you know blissfully simple mm -hmm. and you know i I was a guy who loved the kinks. I was a guy who loved uh, uh, songs, song songs, like songs that are that are challenging and and complex. You know, I love the Beatles. I love the Who. I love the kinks. Um, uh, Neil Young, Bob Dylan. I like things with a little bit more. But, you know, nobody was putting bands together back then doing Beatles. Nobody back then was doing uh, by 1972. Nobody's playing the kinks in, in cover bands. 
No, no, it's it's kind of for us, I guess we start having the glam rock period and then there's the heavy metal and then there's prog rock. So how does it work with you in, in America? Well, you know, this is again, this is the Midwest. You're you're nobody's thinking like that. You're in this like like this backwater and all everybody is thinking of we have to get gigs. And in order to get gigs, we got to learn these types of songs to play for this kind of audience. So you just learn the cover songs that are popular for one genre. And the people I was involved with were very much what would later become uh, metal. Uh, you know, you know, I like Jethro Tull. I thought Tull was great, very complex, very imaginative. These guys like Blood Rock and, uh, like I said, Black Sabbath. And, uh, you know, I got fired because after yes. about a year, I'm like, yeah, and I remember I got, I, I'm friends with the guy who fired me now. Um, but, you know, I, I came up to him in, in the hallway at high school. I said, hey, what time's rehearsal? He said, you're not going to rehearsal, you're fired. I went, oh, and you know what? I really wasn't that bummed. I was like, <laughs> you know what? You know, I mean, I, I love Black Sabbath. I do a I do a really nice version of Paranoid as a ballad, which is a beautiful, beautiful melody when you slow it down. It's gorgeous, but not my not my cup of tea. I, I no. love it. I think it's fun. But like I said, I like complex complexity and, you know, something it's interesting because there was a really good TV. There was a series, wasn't there? Classic albums. And there was a Black Sabbath one. And, and they talk about that very early, early years. And actually, it was interesting where they got some of their influences from. There was uh, one of the, I think it was the guitarist or the bass player talking about the planets. He said, you know, if you listen to the planets and you listen to this riff, this is where what I was listening to. And then oh. I took it to the guitar and then you develop the song. So it's, it, it is kind of, and then you have Caravan of Love, don't you? And war yeah. pigs, and you know it's um, fairies in yeah. Was it fairies in pink boots or fairies in something? Oh, fairies wear boots. Yes, I don't know. Yeah. There was there was a, there, yeah. I mean, I do like that first couple of albums they did. You know, no, I thought they... it, it's it's it reminiscent of a, a a bit of a more sophisticated for me when Black Sabbath came out. They were a sophisticated version of the Trogs, which was uh, you know no symbols real basic chords, really, really kind of like something, you know, where the Trogs were a little bit more Neanderthal. Uh, Black Sabbath was a little bit more uh, uh, satanic but fa and faster, but there was a real simplicity to, you know, I mean, it doesn't really get much simpler than that. No, but it's great because at the time, don't forget, you have Jimi Hendrix, you have Eric Clapton, you have all this complexity coming at you. And then all of a sudden these guys come out going, it's like, whoa. And that's the same thing with punk rock when that came out, you know, uh, uh, six, seven years later, it was so stripped of everything, all the filigree. It was just so refreshing to hear again, just a guitar driving a band and very simple lyrics and a very strong melody and a very, very pointed message. Thank God for that, because, you know, that's coming out of not only the, the and I, I know I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but that's really coming out of uh, not only the nightmare that was country rock, and Jackson Brown and the Eagles and all that. It's also coming out of ELP and Tangerine Dream and, and Chick Corea, all this super complex Baroque 
uh, approaches to pop music and so and uh, uh, rock and roll that when punk rock comes out, it's like, oh my god, thank you. Yes, thank you. this is true. This is true because I had a brother who was seven years older than me, and he was into prog rock. So I sneaked into his room and used to listen to these albums by Yes and Genesis, Wishbone, Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. I just yeah. thought it was fascinating to hear. But he also had Sergeant Pepper and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which was also albums I kind of was obsessed with and found it kind of intriguing. And at the time, this was like early to mid-70s, so there was no cultural context to Sergeant Pepper or Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. It was like, these songs were amazing. These lyrics, what did they mean? You know, it was quite interesting, but I did get carried away with my prog period as well. Uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, see, I was in college at that time and, you know, all my friends were into prog rock. All my friends were into, uh, jazz fusion. Remember that jazz fusion? Report. Yeah. Yeah. And God bless those bands. Those bands are incredible musicians and play with an incredible, uh, incredible bil- uh, an ability for, I saw, uh, years ago, I saw, um, uh, Greg Lake, uh, we loved him leading Ringo's Ringo Starr's all-star band. And he was, I, I, you know, to hear uh, some of those, those songs, ELP songs played live with Ringo on the drums and Sheena Easton was absolutely amazing. I sat back back and I thought, Oh, these guys, he's an incredible musician, which back then it was like, to me, it was like, eh, this is a little too Baroque for me. But yeah. sitting Sitting as an adult going, oh, my God, this guy is this guy's not only good, he's really, really, really great. So, you know, there's yes, there's an appreciation that you, you know, it's like now I can listen to opera nonstop. I couldn't do that when I was, you know, 16 and certainly couldn't do it in my in my punk rock 20s. But now it's the only it's one of the few things that I listen to. It's like I I have I have the patience now to endure that to to experience that yes so when you got to that period here you know you're at the perfect age for david bowie roxy music did they come into your orbit at all at this stage or oh yeah 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 um uh we were we loved hunky dory we loved uh the man who sold sold the earth sold the world sold the world yes sorry it was a late night Um, (laughs) it was sold the world yeah um that stuff was played on the uh, what we called underground radio back then, which was the FM stations. And so we were exposed to all that through through that and through friends. And then Hunky Dory was just that was another uh, life changing, not life changing, but just a, a, a leap forward for me, which is the idea that you could play acoustic instruments that aggressively. And again, the complexity, what I love is the complexity of the songs on, on a hunky dory, but also the accessibility. That's where Bowie was just absolutely wonderful was the ability that that ability he had like Mozart to throw all this challenging structure at you. And yet there's just something about it that you can just grab a hold of. And it never leaves, leaves you wondering, where am I at? What are you trying to tell me? What, what's going on here? Uh, you could have done that line better. Uh, so, yeah, so that was, and then being in Indiana uh, when 
the whole glam thing started with Iggy and Bowie and Mata Hoople. That was interesting. It was interesting to be in a bathroom at high school and guys talking about all the young dudes and what it means. And we're all standing there smoking and, you know, the, the, uh, uh, gay overtones to that song, as well as Lola was interesting to be talking about in a bathroom with, with a bunch of high school guys in a town where everybody is deathly, deathly afraid, uh, somebody's going to think they're gay. That's the world I grew up in. Yes, it was um, it was quite frowned upon, wasn't it? Really, our comedy at that point was really embarrassing when you look back at it. But um, at the time, it was just normal. Yeah, it was. Uh, uh, you know, and it wasn't. Uh, it was that there was something seriously wrong with you. And in high school, you, you know, especially the high school I went to, and the town I grew up in, if anybody ever thought that you were uh, gay or bisexual or what have you you were in serious danger. And, you know, I, I don't know how many times in my, my life I've been, you know, people have used the F word, which I don't know. Do you use the F word? You don't use the F word there. Not so much. No. It means something different there. It means cigarettes and bundles of wood. Yes. <laughs> yes, it has. Not a, here. Not, not here. here. Oh, no. <laughs> No, so, you know, that was that was a real interesting change. And I watched my friends who were were very, uh, uh, you know, were, were gay or were uh, walking that line really blossom, begin to blossom when that started happening. When mm-hmm. when all the young dudes, when Ziggy Stardust hit it's and that was hard for a lot of rock and roll dudes to use that, that term to accept. You know. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there was a real macho denim status quo, rock and roll. I guess you would have had, you know, I don't know what sort of bands were the equivalent of the status quo, but it was it was definitely a feeling that it was bloke music, and um, there was no yeah. gay, there was no gay sports people, there was no, you know, and 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 newspapers would, you know, threaten, you know, politicians or business people, anybody yeah. with this kind of you know, we've got something on you and it's just basically your sexuality. And you're thinking, my God, that was horrendous. You know, people had their lives destroyed because of this one thing that now, thankfully, no one really cares about, hopefully. So, um, yeah, and, and again, like I said, you know, in, in, I'm, I'm remembering this moment. You're bringing this to mind. Uh, remember this moment of standing in a bathroom with a bunch of guys smoking cigarettes and going, yeah, well, yeah, cool. Yeah, all the young dudes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Guys, guys screwing each other. Yeah, great. And other guys going, oh man, that's that's, that's too fucking weird, man. I got, I can't handle that, man. And just like, you just. But my group was like, yeah, okay, but sure. <laughs> yes, so well, that, and there was a great picture, isn't there, on um, Transformer? That photograph on the back, you know that. Oh, um, yeah. And there's that kind of playing with little things, but it all had to be slightly under the radar. It was very kind of interesting. Uh, but that actually makes it much more alluring is that what, you know, what is going on here? I remember when Transformer came out that year, my senior year of high school, and everybody loved, you know, because Walk on the Wild Side is being played on the underground radio along with the record and Walk on the Wild Side is really kind of crossing over and you know, it was weird to see like the the real homophobic athletes singing that song. And it's like, I don't know what they were thinking. 
but um, they loved it. So that's that's that was just great to make that like what what Ray Davies did with Lola to make a very, very, very complex subject, completely accessible and likable, which was just wonderful. You know, how how better to get across your point as opposed to just, yeah, it's a good song. Right. It's just that's that's really the power of music, because like I said, with my group, they was like, yeah, okay, great. Sure. I could see why, you know, I could see why guys. Yeah, sure. Guys are beautiful. I get it. But um, do I sound like an old man here talking about it? No. (laughs) Oh, no, it's just you live and let live. Anyway. So, yeah, that's what that's a really you're 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 going to give me a lot to think about today because I, I forgot about that passage with, um, uh, well, we, we would have Ziggy Stardust, we'd have Lola, we'd have Transformer, we'd have Iggy, we'd have, uh, what else was a major blow to the machismo? I uh, guess it would have been people like suddenly seeing Johnny Rotten appearing, but he was, you know, that wasn't quite the same, was it? But there was elements of, um, I suppose, Susan, Susan the Banshee started to appear, didn't they? People like that also came along. Um, 1973? No, we're no, no, not 73. It would have been, I suppose, no, Twisted Sister was still in their infancy, weren't they, at that stage? Yeah. 80s. No, so this is my high school year, senior year, last two years of high school were like Aqualung, um, Who's Next, um, Led Zeppelin, Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven record. Yeah, but you had, we we also had the suite. Remember they dressed up and it was a very confusing, it was, you know, I remember your dad would say, are they men or women? You know, are they boys or women and and things like that so that was that was often something that the older generation would mention and i re- i remember being in the midwest driving around in somebody's car and that song coming on the radio and everybody in the car being what what is what what is this and yeah okay yeah it was very very the doors are beginning to open which was just absolutely fantastic so that's 73 and i'm still in the midwest um and then I leave the, I leave Indiana and I go to art college. I go to art theater music school and suddenly I am surrounded by uh, artists and theater people and musicians, classical musicians, jazz musicians, rock musicians, everybody. And it's absolutely effing wonderful. I finally feel like I'm home. And these are people from all over America you know, living, living with, with all kinds of people, all kinds of sexuality, absolutely wonderful. And that's why. And where was this? This was in a, 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 the Midwest down in St. Louis, an art, an art college, art theater. uh... Pause, please. (sighs) Okay. I'm sorry, David. Am I just blabbing your ear? No, off? no, no, not at all. I'm with you. I'm just, I'm just waiting for you. You know, I was hoping you were just kind of, you know. I yeah. had a Pepsi, a little bit of a Pepsi Cola thing. A, a Pepsi yeah. moment. Yes. Pepsi. Uh, yeah, this was a theater art school called Webster College at the time. It's now Webster University, and it was just. I remember coming down there, and there were these one guy running down the hall to another guy screaming that he just he you know very glam very 
uh, 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 Ziggy Stardust period glam screaming that he'd accidentally shaved off his eyebrow. And I thought, I'm home. I'm home. I'm with my people. And so I ended up meeting the guys from my band that I would end up moving to San Francisco with and getting my, you know, first education as a, you know, front, real front person singing his own material. Um, That was years later, but, you know, that's where I got started. And that was... That was uh, 1974, so we're talking about uh, Ziggy into Aladdin Sane. Yes. And then- now, now you're beginning to talk. Beatles are gone. You know, they're revered. They, you know, they haven't quite turned into Christmas carols yet, which I now think of the Beatles as like, it's just great. It's like Christmas carols. Everybody knows them. Um Beatles are gone. Stones are kind of getting wonky. It's like it. Queen, and then Queen comes out around this. No, no, Queen actually has been around, but they hit big with Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm yes. sorry. I'm just uh, ask me a specific question. I'm just going to be doddering like an old man here. No, no, but it was it kind of marries on, doesn't it? Because I think that was about seventy five, seventy six, wasn't it? Bohemian Rhapsody, Freddie Mercury, yeah, the sort of the the showman appears again, doesn't he? And um, and that's kind of quite a major moment, really, because their songs kind of mix show showbiz, don't they, with hard rock. And it's kind of this fusion with a bit of prog rock thrown in as well with various and kind opera. of interesting concepts. And Mozart and opera. And that's that. God bless Queen for that. Um, but let's go back to 74. Um, the Kinks were playing and they were, oh, they were doing Preservation Acts 1 and 2. Right. I had tickets for that and uh, we were all getting ready to go. And uh, two of my friends were very gay. I mean, very, sorry, let's edit that out. Yes. Please. Two of my friends who were very uh, extravagant, uh, very glam. Um, I said, are we ready to go? And they said, Andy, you're not going to see the kinks in blue jeans. Go put on that nice white suit of yours and meet us out here in 10 minutes. And so I, I, I went, oh, yeah, sure. Okay. And I put on my white suit and my pink shirt and a floral tie and looked like a million dollars like they did and went to see the kinks. It was just so great. It's that At that point, the kinks were like, you don't show up in blue jeans, Andy. You wear a suit and you, you dress for the occasion much like going to the opera. Um, and so I saw they did the, the, their greatest hits and then they did Preservation Acts 1 and 2, which was I thought was kind of difficult to play that in front of a rock audience that had come in and just had heard 45 minutes of the greatest kink songs ever and then asked them to sit there and watch a, a theater piece, which was, it was kind of an interesting. Yes, uh, but I bet people are envy you now for, for seeing that performance. That would be uh, some. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would imagine. So I, you know, I've never had a chance really to talk to anybody about it. It was it was it was challenging. Mr. Mr. Davies was up there. And, you know, the first part of the show, he was, you know, he's unbelievable, an unbelievable performer, funny. And that's the other thing. He really showed me how you can be funny on stage and never lose the ability to transform that into going into a ballad 
and then something really, really angry and then come back to humor. He was just, he could, he could cover all the emotions uh, verbally and musically on stage. He was absolutely beautiful. And then when he started doing the play, he was stuck in that character. He couldn't really, you know, uh, uh, step out of character. He couldn't really improvise. He couldn't play off the audience because he's doing a play. That was really, really challenging, but I really respected him for, you know, putting himself and putting the band in that precarious situation. Yes, absolutely. But we also at that stage probably had Paul McCartney's band on the run, didn't we? And John Lennon's yeah. Shade Fish. Did you sort of start picking up on any of the solo work of the oh, Beatles yeah, as well? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, it was a little wonky at first with Paul because I was used to Beatle Paul. I wasn't really sure what he was doing at first. It seemed a little, um, I don't know, a little too sweet without John. I understand it better now. Again, as an old man, I understand it now of him just walking away from all that, you know, uh, uh, recording uh, wizardry and complexity and just wanting to, especially his first couple, couple solo, his first solo record was was like, you know, like a musician making music he enjoys doing and he's not really thinking much more than that. Yes. Uh, which was a big step away for him. Uh, John Lennon's first solo record, The Real Angry One, was really great. Uh, everything else after that, imagine I began to get a little like, I wasn't really crazy about Phil Spector's uh, production. No. Uh, a little questionable, uh, questioning about, uh, a little bit in the dark about the lyrical quality of imagine because basically with you know not meaning to kick the dead but it is kind of a narcissistic anthem it's basically saying imagine if the whole world was just like me we'd all get along you know to me imagine no religion and no religion too it's like yeah that's 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 pretty simple-minded john how about we all accept each other's <laughs> religions and whatever anybody else wants to think you know it's 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 kind of like i said it's kind of the narcissistic narcissist's anthem yes this is true this is true so we so as we were trucking through you know there was you mentioned david bowie's aladdin saying then it was probably darwin dogs and then there was kind yeah. of young americans did you keep a track on bowie's career or did you think no that's gone david you've you've lost it i'm not a you know i The Young Americans record was not one of my favorites. I'm not really, uh, I mean, it's a beautiful record, beautifully written. I can hear all that, but it was not, it was a little too um, R&B for my taste. Not that I don't like R&B. I love R&B, but it just was a little too fluidy for me. I like, you know, I like, uh, uh, anyway, but come back to Heroes, you know, now you now you have me again. Yes, this is true. But then we would have had the Ramones, the Damned, the Stranglers, the Sex Pistols. Yeah. How did that? How did that sort of hit when that those sort of bands started to appear on your radar? Just oh, that's a real interesting story. If, I mean, for me, it's interesting. Yes, um, I'm going to turn the AC on. I'm beginning to cook here. Do you mind? No, no, that's fine. I couldn't hear it the first time, so that's all right. So now we're talking St. Louis college, the whole thing with college is beginning to get like 
turned bad, like I'm sick of this. This is, yeah, I've heard all this Chick Corea uh, fusion jazz with all the players. Nobody wants me in their band because all I want to do is sing two, three minute songs. Um, you know, and you get sick of being in college. Anyway, one night, me and one of these uh, blues jazz players were hanging out, and I started saying, hey, you remember this song? And I started playing Dirty Water by the, by the Standells. And I, he said, yeah, that was a great song. And then we started playing Hey Joe by the Leaves, going, yeah, that's really, whoa. Those, and we're just sitting here going, those songs are so great. They're like two minutes long, and they just say everything you need to say. And it's everything you need is in this song. And we start playing all these old garage band songs, you know, from the, from the, uh, uh, kind of American reaction to the English invasion. Is this like the Nuggets collection? Yeah, 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 like psychotic reaction. And, and, but just this was just happening really natural between me and, me and this other fellow at, uh, at school around 1975, 76, 75. And then like a week later, we said, yeah, that was fun. And a week later, we walking down into one part of the school, and there's this other group of guys singing songs like that singing Hey Joe, singing Dirty Water, singing this little, you know, nasty, sneery white boy ditty from the 60s. And we looked at each other and went, well, that's weird. And then we went out to a club maybe another two weeks later, and there were these guys on stage in black turtlenecks. They were all dressed the same, black turtlenecks, playing Dirty Water, Standells, and we're going, what's going on here? And mm. then all of a sudden you start seeing this stuff about these bands called the Ramones and, you know, short songs with great melodies. And then you hear that and it's like, whoa, that's, that's, that's like, a, you know, the early, the early Ramones are like some of those Shirelles records with, with like a, just, just a, a really intense rock background. Cause the, 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 the songs are very like, uh, um, um, down in Palisades Park, those kind of melodies. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. You know, only with a really aggressive, simple, punch-you-in-the-gut feeling. And then all of a sudden you see the Sex pistol stuff. And that is like, I remember the first thing I saw was that, I can't remember the name of the magazine, but the, the, the title of the, the little blurb was, We Hate Everything. And I went, whoa. <laughs> and then there was this psycho guy named Tony who worked in the school cafeteria with like boils all over his face. And everybody just thought Tony was really, really weird. He was kind of a Manson guy and he was cooking a hamburger going, Hey Andy, Andy, what do you think of that punk rock shit? That's pretty bad, huh? And I went, Whoa, that's great. I love it. And I went, Whoa, this guy really like this, this psycho really likes punk rock, this punk rock stuff. I got to check this out. And so then it begins to come at you and it's, 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 you know, one of the reasons why I like listening to modern opera, it's really challenging because at first, you know, I'm not, I'm not 14 now I'm 20, I'm pushing 20. So I'm getting a little bit more buffeted by changes now. I'm not just accepting everything like I did when I was nine and 10 and 13. Wow, it's great. Oh, it's great. As I want it, I want it. It's fantastic. Now it's like, whoa, this is, this is not how I thought music was going to, wow, this is really aggressive and nasty. Yeah. And, uh, great and scary. You know, there we go. There's my, there's my upbringing. You know, this, this is like my dad. This is 
weird, scary shit. These guys are being very violent and they're not beautiful like Led Zeppelin. They're like really kind of making themselves ugly. Do I want to be ugly? I mean, I've, I've tried very hard to be a beautiful, you know, and so, like I said, because I'm a little older, it's, it's buffeting. It's, 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 it's challenging. It's very alluring, but it's also very scary. The older you get, the scarier change becomes. It's, it's funny how you are. That's why kids are, they make kids soldiers because they don't care. It's like, yeah, great. By the time you're 20, it's like, uh, yeah, let me think about this. So, yes. um, but the showbiz God led me in the right direction. When college was over, he steered me to the East coast into New Jersey to be in a prog rock band. It was, they said, we want you to be the lead singer to this band. We want you to write all the material. It has to be of like kind of a, you know, an edgy, new, blah, blah, blah. I said, yay. And I got there. They said, yeah, we changed directions. We're going to have this guy who lives in a pyramid that he built. He's going to write the lyrics. You're going to sing them. And it was this prog rock band. And I was in that for three months. And I'm reading everything that's going on right across the river in New York about all the punk rock bands and, the, and, and you know, the Ramones, the Dictators, Mink DeVille. It was just this melange of new, exciting acts that at the core of it were, were, were uh, uh, um, songwriters and, and, and uh, you know, changing, getting away from all this. Anyway, and I was broke. I was working moving furniture and I could never get to New York City. And I was in this band singing, Oh Lady of the Sunset Scarlet, the moon and the sun are in your eyes. And that just made me want whatever was going on in the punk rock scene that much more. Yes, I think um, that was... Now, you weren't on the zeitgeist on that one, were you, really? Well, I was watching the zeitgeist. I bought the records, and but I couldn't be... You know, it was from where I was in Jersey, it was just, you know, you had to be at work the next day and there was rehearsal. And, you know, there's this thing about I'm going to be in a band even though I don't like it because at least it's a band. It's kind of like a relationship. Well, we don't really love each other, but we're still, we're going to stay together. Yes, absolutely. And that's, so, that's kind of, so with, as we were trucking through the the seventies, you know, you, you, we, I suppose it was towards that point where 79, we have Thatcher gets into power, which is kind of a big shift. You get Reagan, don't you? But oh, things, yeah. but things are economically looking a lot better in America at this stage. Well, okay, so we're moving on to 1979, right? Ish, yes. In, in, okay, now by this, this point, I'm in San Francisco. I'm in the band with the guys I was in college with, art school with, and we're playing at the Mabuhay Gardens. We're playing with all the punk bands, art rock bands, art bands, uh, uh, new wave bands. At this point, everything is really, I loved it, because there was just three bands every night, and they were all... You know, sometimes it would be just punk rock. Sometimes it would be uh, some something from the from the San Francisco Art Institute. Some some students there putting together some you know great little art piece with us, which was sort of a, a mixture of punk, but also you know I would just say kind of a more of a, a new wave melodic. Yes. 
um, sensibility, which is where my strong points are. Uh, and everybody was kind of accepting of one another until 1979, I think, when the NAC, do you remember the NAC? Oh, yes. Yes. My Sharona. That split everything up. That was that that I remember being a real big sea change then because all the bands got together on, uh, you know, got along and, and supported one another until this commercial success took elements of the scene and had a huge success across the board. And suddenly normal people, quote unquote, are, are you know, involved and suddenly a lot of money is being made. So now if you were kind of a 60s influenced band, you were out. You don't you don't you don't do shows with with punk rock bands. No, it got very, very uh, uh, doctrinaire, you know, punk rock bands, Dead Kennedys, socialism. You you're selling out. You're a commercial. You're just a hack. I don't want to have anything to do with you. So the scene kind of split up at that point. That's where I really felt the at least in San Francisco, that the initial punk rock scene. Uh, new wave scene kind of fell apart once somebody got through and made millions and millions of dollars doing what, you know, was up to that point kind of uh, 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 secretive and, and you know, uh, in crowd type of a thing. Was it the same as Blondie making it in the punk world? Suddenly no, everyone... I don't know. That's, that's really weird that, you know, maybe, but, you know, we had watched Blondie, you know, work her way up. You know, she was one of the originals. Like it was like the Talking Heads. Nobody begrudged them their success because you'd watch them work their way up from nothing. You know, and they they were they were played by by their music was was accepted by a select few, then a, then a then a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more as the years went by. So by the time she had her success, you go, okay, well, you know, good on her. But to have a band come out of nowhere, it kind of looked like, hey, let's put on these suits, you know. Let's put on these new wave suits. That's not what those guys did. I'm sure they're, they're, you know, I know people who know them. I'm not saying that, but the general appearance was, this is just some manufactured thing by the corporations. Unfortunately. Yes. Cause it was, there was a sort of post-punk period, wasn't there in the UK. We had people like Elvis Costello came along, yeah. Joe Jackson came along and they were a bit more serious. They weren't really punk, but they had that energy. And then right. there was, there was people like wire you know, the Nightingales, Public Image Limited, Gang of Four, yeah. they they sort of came, but they were all kind of, they were still a bit sinister. The Knack were were sort of quite radio-friendly, weren't they? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a good point about Elvis Costello. I mean, it, it was, you know, just by looking at him, it's like, I don't want to fuck with this guy. I don't, <laughs> don't want to cross this guy. This guy is really, really, really good, and he's not going to tolerate, I don't he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, 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 what is it? Fools gladly. Yes, yes, that's right. Suffer fools gladly. I think I'll just keep my mouth shut. He's one of the guys I don't ever want to marry, uh, meet. Uh, Voltaire, uh, W.S. Gilbert, John Lennon, uh, and uh, uh, Elvis Costello. No, I don't. No. <laughs> I just think they'd all cut me to ribbons. No, I'll just, I'll just sit back here. You guys go on. Um, so, so, but, how, yeah. so how did eye protection then develop then over that period when you were in uh, San Francisco with, with them? You know, we were all friends and musicians together in college. And then we came out there by, you know, uh, again, the showbiz God sort of played 
ping pong or played uh, pinball, and we somehow all of a sudden ended up together in in Monterey, California, which was just like hippie central. This is just how it all played out. We said, where do we want to go? Do we want to go to Los Angeles and get our asses kicked? Or do we want to go to San Francisco and learn what it is that we can do? We said, let's go to San Francisco. We struggled and, and, and stumbled for a number of years because we were very diverse musically. We had a blues master guitar player named John, John Maxwell, who's still playing. Our keyboard player was a jazz maestro. Uh, I wanted to be, you know, a singer, songwriter, front, fronts person. Uh, our drummer also was a great fronts person, but also had a very, uh, a very incredibly uh, 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 highly developed artistic sense. He, he had started out in the fine arts. So, you know, it wasn't like we're going to get together and let's let's be like the next Sex Pistols. Let's be like the next Ramones. We did. We were like, let's try this. Let's try that. Let's try this. Let's bring in this element. Let's bring in that element. You know, we realized that we were a conglomeration of musical influences. Let's throw them all in the in the sausage maker and see what comes out. Well, sometimes it just comes out as shit. Some. Oh, I'm sorry. Can we use that language? That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. So yes. sometimes it just comes out like rotten meat, and sometimes it's like, oh, well, there. There's a great three minutes. And, uh, you know, we stumbled around and played and eventually uh, uh, drugs took one person, uh, made him go to rehab. And uh, uh, Jesus took another person, made him go whatever. And the band basically fell apart. We had some record label different uh, interest, but nothing to secure us a deal. And so after, you know, five or six gallant years of a lot of fun and a lot of shows and certainly learning a lot of lessons, now I was by myself. Yes. So so I've done a couple of um, interviews with bands who've just had live recordings from Mabu Hay Gardens. That that seems to be someone's found a lot of these cassettes and, or tapes and went, oh, do you want these? And, oh, we'll put them out as a live recording. I think there's a band called, the, is it the Feelies have just had one? Um, various other people have just had them. So do you have any live recordings of the band that you think we should read? Yeah, should- no, you shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> just There's this thing, is like, again, back then the technology was so crap. We needed a, we have a piano player in our band and we hated the sound of a Rhodes piano. We just hated it. Just to us always sounded like, so we didn't get a Rhodes, plus we couldn't afford a Rhodes. So we bought something that we ended up just calling the Dink Master because that's just what it sounded like. This annoying, buzzy little keyboard that was supposed to be like a, a electric piano, but it wasn't. It sounds sort of like a shitty harpsichord. So anything that we do is is damaged by the Dink Master. I, I hear it. And I just my butt clenches. It's just like oh, I can't can't handle that. And then my singing's a little I don't know pretentious. But we were all pretentious back then because that was the other thing of the deconstructive quality of punk rock, which was like, well, you know, Johnny Lydon didn't really sing like that. When he sang Ave Maria in grade school, he didn't sing Ave Maria. He didn't sing it like that. He, he that's a that is a deconstructive artifice that he's doing, as was everybody back then. And my deconstructive artifice was a little uh, Anthony Newley, a little David Bowie, a little too. Yeah, I don't know. I listen now and just like I want to grab my twenty-one-year-old self, 
smack me across the face and say, just sing, just sing it. Don't reinvent the wheel, just sing. But so, yeah, if you find eye protection, have a ball. We had, a, you know, we had a horn section. We did all kinds of great stuff. Sometimes we would have a horn section. Uh, we would begin the show with a Bach fugue and all kinds of great stuff. But it wasn't very focused, but fun. Not focused, but fun. When it was focused, it was really, really good. And some of the other stuff is, you know, it's it was just sort of a learning, a learning period for me as a songwriter. Yeah, the eighties appears. The eighties appears. So for us, the eighties in the UK, like I mentioned, we've got Thatcher who suddenly develops this kind of amazing personality. We have the Falkland War, have the uh, miners' crisis. We have Green and Common. We think we're all going to be nuked. You know, there was a, you know, the musically, there was a little bit of that new romantic stuff that started to appear, electronic yeah. music, the Human League, Heaven 17, early part of New Order after Joy Division, obviously have to sort of, I don't know, reinvent themselves, stuff like that. So what was it, what was that next period like as we sort of stumbled into another decade? Can we put it on pause? Yeah, God, yes. Let's have a go. Let's have a, a pause here. Yeah, so the, yeah, so the eighties is 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 with us as we you know, and you, we've got Dallas as well. I don't know, and all those and, and JR Union. So where where were you then, sort of emotionally and spiritually at this stage? Well, I at this point, I thought, you know, I was kind of over punk rock. This is like say nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty. I'd seen it all, I'd heard it all, and now bands were beginning to kind of repeat themselves. And I, I don't know how many more bands with two guitars and a bass and a drum. Uh, singing like that i can see at the gardens three four bands a night and then there's all of a sudden this kind of lush synthesized new uh uh some of it is 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 uh, uh purposefully soulless some of it is very emotional it just seemed uh like everybody had walked away from this ugly school you know, because the hope was if we're all ugly, then we won't become commercialized and we can stay pure. Uh, and now it's sort of turning into more uh, beautified and more emotional and less angry. And I was intrigued, you know, because as a, again, as a songwriter and an artist, that's really what intrigues me is the range of emotions, the range of experience, not just anger, not just, you know, the man is keeping us down. He's being, but so I was very taken by that. I really enjoyed that. And, you know, bands like uh, Devo were coming, uh, were really making a stride here, which were really ironic, very funny, really smart art student stuff. That's what I loved. I loved that, that the art students had got on, the, you know, top 40. Um, so to me, I felt that music had blossomed a bit by gaining a little bit more, a lot more emotional complexity. And I was intrigued. I mean, we're talking 81, 82. I mean, I really liked the first Psychedelic Furs record. That was an amazing record. Did you yes. like that? Yeah, absolutely. Was that the one that was produced by Todd Rundgren or was that the next one? Which one had Imitation of Christ on it? Yeah, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I just, just, I just, they're pow very powerful. Two for, first two records were just really, really gorgeous. And 
so uh, I thought this was a great new step forward that, you know, I'm utilizing the keyboards, use like utilizing uh, synthesizers, uh, combining that with uh, more of a elongated human, uh, elongated singing. Um, I was very intrigued. I very, very liked it. And I also liked the fact that that fashion itself uh, was becoming a little bit more romantic looking, a little bit more uh, 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 theatrical, which I like, you know. And what about you two, Simple Minds, Echo and the Bunnymen? Were they kind of on your radar at all? At all? You know, uh, you know. To be honest with you, and why wouldn't I be, uh, I was too broke to buy records. So I absorbed what I heard in the clubs, what I heard on the radio. Um, occasionally I'd buy a record. Uh, so, you know, I'm in the clubs every night. So, yeah, Echo and a Bunnyman, that was great. Again, it's like being in a club and hearing that stuff. Oh, you know, it was just a magnificent song. Um, I remember the first time... I ever heard uh, Why Can't I Touch It by Buzzcocks. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. I was in a giant converted temple, former Jewish temple, that was just as big as the Capitol Dome. And this song comes on, and it was just, what a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful song that is. So, you know, that's really where my taste would go towards that. Uh, and, and I just thought that there was suddenly hearing a lot of multi-layered, lush. It just seemed very a lot, very lush period after the 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 uh, uh, sackcloth of punk rock. It just mm. seemed suddenly very lush and gorgeous. Uh, some of the bands I was a little U uh, two Echo. I mean, I don't want to criticize anybody's band. I they spawned, let's say, they spawned a number of imitators where there would be just kind of a guitar groove and somebody wailing over over it. I saw a number of bands trying to do what Echo and the Bunnymen did, and it just was kind of uh, just wailing in the moonlight. Uh, you know, there was also a Doors uh, renaissance at this point. Do you remember this? Like 82, suddenly punk rock and, and, and post-punk discovered Jim Morrison. Do you remember this? I remember there was a sort of new Paisley vibe, wasn't there, with all these kind yeah. of bands? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that was quite interesting. I remember that kind of, um, yeah, and some of them were quite good and some were just okay. And But then for me, 83, the Smiths appear. And I was like, oh, I quite like this. You know, this yeah. was my band. So, um, yeah, I don't know. But 83, that's that's sort of, you know, you, we're not quite there, are we, yet? So we were still in 81. How old are you at this point where you hear the Smiths? So I would have been um, probably 56. About 18, I would imagine. Okay. All right, so I'm nine years older, and what am I, 25, 26, 28, 29? What am I? 29. Right. If you're 18, I'm 29. So I'm here in the Smiths, right? Did I get the math right that time again? Yeah. Oh, boy. I'm, I'm really doing well. When I hear the Smiths, I'm like, you son of a bitch. Listen, to these guys. That is so great. Oh, what? Now I'm listening to it as a competitor. 
as as a composer within this uh, within this this large body and hearing somebody out there come up with a really great idea and a really great delivery and you're looking at it much more like ugh how why didn't I think that that is so you know so it's a little different you follow me yes absolutely that's um yes you can you, you're so prince is prince was was you know coming up at this point and that was just like okay i might as well quit um but that that's a whole other world but uh but yeah so i'm like looking at the smiths as um somebody i could possibly learn from but certainly not imitate you know and or to avoid a style you know follow me you follow what i'm saying yeah absolutely and um I don't want to be imitative it's it's well but it's tricky so then so then how do you do you sort of make that next move into your kind of career oh you mean when did i join wall of voodoo hmm how did that happen Oh, okay. How much longer do you want to go on? Well, I don't mind because they're on IRS records, aren't they? The famous Miles Copeland. Miles Copeland. Okay, so here's how it goes. All right. And, you know, you're going to have a lot to edit. So eye protection breaks up in 1980. One, I spend 1982 in the studio down on Turk Street in, in San Francisco, just writing and writing and writing and writing songs. And um, I don't know what to do. I mean, I've gone around San Francisco. You start going around in circles. I don't know. The band's broken up. I, nobody's asking me to sing. I don't know if I want to be in a band, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, I get a call from a guy who had been a manager of ours at one time who he had fired because of his drug problem. He called me up, said, I'm sober now. My father has invested a huge amount. His father was very wealthy, has invested a huge amount of money in my company. Uh, I want to bring you to L.A. I want to do a a quality recording session with you and get you the record label deal you deserve. Uh, You're going to have to move to L.A. and I will give you some money. And that just seemed like a gift from God. That was Mm. like I didn't know what else to do. So I went, I signed the deal. My girlfriend and I moved to LA and what proceeded, what happened next was a nightmare. It was just, uh, he was not sober. Uh, I ended up being the kind of a front to his drug habit. He wrote a lot of receipts to my project that went to drugs and stuff. Um, and the recording itself was absolutely fucking dreadful. Just dreadful as dreadful as dreadful can be um you know at this time tom tom club has had a hit there's been this sort of do you remember when post-punk got a little funky yes yes absolutely oh that's what he's thinking he's going hey i'm gonna just get you we're gonna you just do what you do and we're gonna be we're gonna put a funk beat to it i'm like no no we're not no we're not yes we are and it's just this endless arguments and Mm -hmm. I knew that these songs were not going to go anywhere. He shopped them. They went nowhere. The feds discovered his writing bad receipts came in and closed the company down. And now here I am in L.A. with nothing. Are you, fr- 
Are you well, free at that? Are you free? You're not under any contract with him. Because no, then his dad takes over the company and oh. says, you're still under contract. We've put a substantial amount of money, blah, 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 blah. You still. So I am not free. Okay. So let me backtrack. Are you with me so far, David? Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. The two guys who played on my project, uh, uh, Dan Schwartz and Greg Aragine, were two wonderful guys, two wonderful musicians who thought I was getting the shaft. They were very supportive. They became really good friends of mine and showed me all around L.A., introduced me to people, took me to places, explained it to me. Thank God for those people. They later uh, became the backup band for Stan Ridgway when he left Wall of Voodoo, but that's, that's a whole, that's later down the line. We're talking 1982 now. Yeah. Okay, so the, the, the company's been taken away. The guy's gotten in trouble with the feds. He's been kicked off the board, and I got nothing. Nobody wants to spend any money. The record company's turned us down, justifiably so. So one of the guys who was the drummer on the program, project got me a job on the in a store called the Soap Plant on Melrose Avenue. And now Melrose Avenue at this time is the, I guess, for lack of a better term, the uh, uh, burgeoning Carnaby Street of Los Angeles, if I may, yeah. if that's, uh, it's, it's a, a, a place for shops where, where the young tragically trendy are beginning to hang out. So I get a job there doing shipping and receiving and then working behind the counter selling stuff at a place called soap plant wacko. And I'm working in wacko, which is a toy store, basically minimum wage. Um, and then, you know, by working on the street, I see across the street from me, there's this kind of punk rock store where all the punk rockers hang out. I begin to see, recognize the people who are coming and going and just kind of no faces. Keep that in mind in the story I'm telling you. I'm starting to date. Uh, uh, my girlfriend and I are broken up. I'm starting to date this beautiful, wonderful Korean girl. Um, and she wants to go to a party. And she said, I want, let's go to Mickey's having a party on Saturday. I'll come by and get you. She's coming by to get me because I don't own a car. I'm broke. I'm living in this one room roach ridden apartment in Hollywood. So I'm sitting outside. David, this is the weirdest thing that ever happened to me. I'm sitting outside. As dejected as a man can be. My band is gone. Eye protection's gone. The recording's gone. I'm working for minimum wage selling wind up toys on Melrose. I'm living in a roach ridden apartment. And a girl's coming to pick me up in her car because I don't have a car. And my career is nowhere. And I'm feeling absolutely dejected. I don't want to go to the party. And it's a full moon. And David, I look up at the full moon. And as seriously, as sincere as I can possibly be, I say, send me a band. Just send me a band. I'll do whatever it takes. I will do whatever you ask me to do. Just send me a band. I said, send me a band that would get my sense of humor. Send me a band that, that needs a singer like me. Send me a band that, that, that is established or knows each other and has a rapport that I can fit in. Just send me a band and I will do whatever it takes. Maria pulls up in her Volkswagen. I get in the car. We go to the party. She's very social. She goes off. Go on, go on. Talk to your friends, Maria. I'm just going to hang out here and smoke. I'm sitting there smoking. And then all of a sudden I see a guy 
who I recognize who works across the street from me. That's all I know. He's this long, gorgeous, long-haired, gorgeous goth dude with this beautiful, uh, you know, vampira kind of, vampira kind of girlfriend next to him. And I said, oh, hey, hey, you work at Pose? He goes, yeah, yeah, you work at Soap Plant. Yeah, okay, so we're talking. We're just talking. I don't even know his name. We're just talking about Melrose, the street we work on, the sandwich lady, this thing, that, blah, blah, blah. Just talking. Store talk. Like two shop, you know, clerks. Yeah. Out of nowhere, while he and I are talking, this short, drunk guy in kind of a shabby suit comes up, looks at me, and then looks at the guy I'm talking to, and then he looks at me, and then he looks at the guy I'm talking to, and he points at me, and he says, he says to the guy I'm talking to, he goes, this is the, this is the guy you're looking for. I can tell by looking at him. This is him. And then he looks at me, he says, do you, do you sing? And I said, and I'm like, you know, cool musician going, yeah, man, sure, I can sing. Yeah. He goes, he goes, it doesn't matter if you can sing. I can just tell by looking at you. You're the guy they want. And he looks at the guy I'm talking to. Go, I'm telling you, this is, this is the guy you want. So by now, I figure the guy I'm talking to is in a band. And I said, so uh, you're in a band, huh? And the guy goes, yeah. I said, oh, what do you play? Because I'm not going to ask him what his band's name is. I'm just going to say, so what do you play? Being a cool musician. He goes, oh, I play bass and keyboards. He goes, what do you play? I said, oh, I sing keyboards. I write songs. Which, yeah. I said, what's the name of the, your band? He goes, Wall of Voodoo. And that's where the drunk steps in and goes, and you're the guy they're looking for. So, David, I knew Voodoo was looking for a singer. I would have never gone knocking on their door. I, 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 I remember when somebody told me, yeah, Voodoo's looking for a singer. I'm thinking, who would take that job? But 20 minutes before this, I'm sitting on my doorstep saying, send me a band that needs somebody that has a rapport, that are established, that would get my sense of humor. And then this drunk walks up to me and says, this is the guy you're looking for. That opens the door. So what do you do after that? My, this guy I'm talking to uh, from Walla Voodoo, Bruce Moreland, says, so you got a tape? I go, yeah, I got a tape. He goes, well, you know, drop it off at the store tomorrow and I'll listen to it. And if I like it, I'll, I'll pass it on to my brother. Right. He said, okay, sure. I mean, sure. Why not? So I did. I put together a three song demo. I mean, three songs of some songs I had recorded in San Francisco during that period where I was just writing songs. I gave it to him. And then my phone got disconnected because I didn't pay my bill. So I was. For three days, four days, I had no idea if I got, they like the tape, if they want me, they want to talk to me or not. Phone gets turned back on. Four days later, there's a message on my answering machine saying, yeah, my brother really liked your tape. He wants to meet you. So I met with Mark Moreland, and I sat down and talked to him about their success and what had happened and Stan leaving and blah, blah, blah. And I was really taken with his humility when he started telling me about the success of Mexican radio. He said... He said something that really I really liked, which was we just made the song we liked. We just thought it was a great song. We weren't trying to get a hit. We just we just really liked it. It was a lot of fun and it just kind of all came together. Next thing you know, it's playing and playing and playing. And we we had a hit with it. But it, it was it was it was the antithesis of what I'd been hearing in L.A. In San Francisco, you see musicians, you say, hey, you want to play? Yeah, let's go play in L.A. 
it was like, if you say, hey, let's go play, they're like, well, who do you know? I mean, for what? Why am I going to travel over 700 square miles to come see you and jam? I mean, it's a different mindset in here in L.A. And Mark was very much uh, the opposite of that. Very humble. He really liked my demo. And so then we just take the next logical step and start working together. And it was it was pretty good. And then Joe Nanini did not make the cut or I don't know what happened between those guys and Joe Nanini. He was supposed to be there, the original drummer. It didn't work out. Um, so we got Ned Lucart from one of the bands that Bruce Moreland had been in and we started working. And once Bruce, once Ned was in the band, that was like my long lost brother being in the band. So I again took that as a sign that you know, the showbiz God or the fates were at work here. And I just went with it. And I knew I was going to get my ass kicked by the press and by fans. But um, either my uh, sense of destiny made me pursue it or my overinflated uh, narcissistic uh, self-evaluation uh, led me into it. I can't yes. tell. Well, who, and who was the little drunk, uh, drunk guy that was saying he's the guy? He's an angel. He's an angel. He was he's like an angel. I guess he's an angel or a devil. Sometimes could have been a devil. So it, it was. A, it wasn't Miles Copeland then. No, it was just a guy out of nowhere points at me and says, "This is the guy you're looking for." Excellent. I mean, so I always figured that made me think that that heaven is is 20 minutes away from wherever you are. It takes 10 minutes to get the message where I was on a doorstep. 10 minutes and. You know, 20 minutes later, the guy shows up. So, you know, uh, it was just a really odd occurrence. Yes, and absolutely. So, so, then went, you, so you, you're in an established band as the new frontman who takes over, after, uh, uh, takes over from Stan. Yeah. No pressure then. Oh, no, not at all. You know, anything, you know, it was a, definitely a trial by fire. It definitely was welcome to the music biz and... The one thing I never wanted to do, ever, ever, ever wanted to do, was attack Stan or denigrate the old band in any way, shape, or form. There was no need to, and I didn't want to, to uh, uh, damage the reputation of the band. I didn't want to challenge anybody. You know, in the MTV years, that would have been the thing, smart thing to do, is cause some sort of frisson. And uh, I was, as I've said elsewhere, I was absolutely honored, honored to sing some of those songs. You know, the songs that we did were co-written by the existing members in the band. You know, we did do Red Light. Mark and Chaz felt they had a, you know, a big hand in creating that song. We did uh, uh, Mexican Radio, which was started by Mark Moreland. So, and it was a real honor, like I said, to sing these songs as a songwriter, because when you're in the middle of one of these songs, they're really well made. They are mm. really well put together sonically lyrically so it's really great to sing those songs so i was really as a singer and a songwriter very honored to sing be to sing these songs so you know that's probably not the rock and roll attitude i should have had but that's just you know as an artist you know i know when there's good work and it was it was lovely to be in those songs during performances and it yeah. was lovely mexican radio Anyway, go ahead. So, no, next well, question. so Mexican radio, which is obviously one of the great anthems of our time. What was that like to perform and sing? 
fun, fun. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, you're singing Mexican, you know, the, the purists are like, you're singing Mexican radio. It's like, well, Mark came up with it. And here's the weird thing about Mexican radio. The first time I ever heard that song, I was in San Francisco, I was dead asleep, and the alarm radio goes off, and it's college radio, the station that we're listening to, and all of a sudden, they said, and here's a new one by Wall of Voodoo, and this song comes on, and I'm half asleep when I hear this, and I went, oh my God, that's like a fever dream. This is like a fever dream. I mean, the first time you hear it, it's like, what? is this is beautiful god and you know i'm very aware of wall of voodoo but they had just taken a quantum leap uh for the first time i ever heard this and this is back when it was just a college radio song but i i i i heard it in sort of a, a semi uh, uh conscious state yes well my god that that you know it is right. it is one of those amazing songs isn't it so when you come to wait 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 so now I'm in Wall of Voodoo. Now I'm working with the guys. Now, you know, years later, I'm in Wall of Voodoo. I'm working with the guys. We're rehearsing, we're rehearsing, we're rehearsing. We're, we're working on new songs or we're demoing, blah, blah, blah. And now comes time to do a show. I'm going to have to go out there now. And we hadn't played any of the old stuff. And I was in rehearsal and I was asleep. I was taking a nap. And Mark and Chaz and Bruce and Ned started working while I was dead asleep, started working on Mexican radio. And that opening opening sequence started and I woke up and I was was so weird. I was in the exact same state the first time I had ever heard the song. Now, this is the first time I've ever heard the song being played in the flesh. So it was just kind of a weird moment. Blah, 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 blah. But you go ahead. How was it like to perform? It was so much fun. I would imagine. But then then when you sit down to do the new the album, your first album with the band, what was that process like? Um, Well, you know, Chaz and I have been working together and we've been talking a lot about this. Those songs that were on Seven Days in Sammy's Town. Had been demoed. Five, six times. The management company and Miles Copeland kept making us go in and recut these songs. I, to, the, to this day, Chaz, T. Gray, and I are, are wondering, why did we cut Big City five times? Why did we cut Far Side of Crazy three times? So by the time we got to uh, uh, work with Ian Brody, it was just kind of, let's just go in and recut these songs. If you hear the demos that we did in 1984, as opposed to the album we did, uh, early 84, summer of 84, uh, we did the er- first demos. And then you hear, compare them with the record, there's no comparison. I mean, the, fir- the early stuff is we're really, really energetic and really exploring our relationships and our musical abilities. And by the time we're in, in with Ian Brody, it's kind of just, you know, you you go in and you play the songs you know and, and do the do the takes. And, you know, Ian did a great job of re- producing us, but there was no sense of adventure. And I think that kind of shows not that it's a bad record. It's just, you know, when you demo songs five times, you kind of know what you're doing. So there's no, Hey, let's, yay, let's do this song. It's like, here we go again. Right. So there you go. Yeah. So on the other other hand, are you a bit disappointed with the album then? You know, no. I mean, it's like it's it's 
I have other criticisms about the record. You know, I think that songs like uh, This Business of Love could have been treated with a, uh, a, a more delicate hand. It's kind of a hoedown. It's actually a lament, but it's also a very humorous lament. Uh, there's a couple other songs that could have just had a little bit more attention paid to. But don't forget, we're on IRS's budget. So I think Ian Broody saw that Far Side of Crazy was the single and put all his attention into it and gave, you know, the other songs, they're, they're just, you know, the time that they could afford to be paid attention to. Yes. And did you... And when did you tour that album? And um, did you come to the UK and Europe with it as well? We toured the UK. We toured the United States. Oh, God, David, this, these stories. Um, we toured the United States with Adam Ant on a uh, kind of a questionable tour of Adam's as support. Uh, then we went to the UK again. I mean, we, our first tour of the UK was in 1985 before the record came out. We toured with the Lords of the new church, which was, um, which was very, which was like meeting your long lost friends from high school. We both bands just, we just all got along and just laughed ourselves silly across the UK for, you know, five weeks. But it was interesting watching Stiv Baders and, uh, uh, Brian, Brian James changing their directions and developing their artistic uh, uh, vision, going from punk rock to this more uh, uh, gothic, brooding kind of a band. A lot of their fans were, you know, kind of felt betrayed. I mean, Stiv's fans, some of his punk rock fans felt betrayed by that. But he got a lot of other fans doing this sort of, doing that, thing that they were doing in the Lords. And what, so was, that, Mar- and what was Marco Peroni like in Adamant? Was he, was he in the band at that stage or had he yeah. left? He had, you know, on our tour, we did the Viva La Rock tour and he had come back. He was, he was very nice. You know, they were, they were the stars of the show and Adam was very, very uh, uh, professional and very gentlemanly. And the rest of the band were very nice to us. And, uh, their crew really liked us. We got along really well with the Adamant crew. You know, we're on for 45 minutes, 40 minutes, and then Adam's on for two hours, and then we, you load up, and maybe you run into each other in the bar the, at the uh, hotel. You know, Adam is Adam's like me. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. Adam would not – you wouldn't see Adam around a lot. But yeah. when I, I had dinner with him in Miles, he was very, very funny. Very gentlemanly, very, uh, I, I liked him a lot. Yes. So as, as the 80s progressed, and then we, we have your next album, Happy Planet, what was uh, this, yes, what was the kind of enthusiasm like of the band at that stage? Because musically, well, th- things had really sort of altered a lot, hadn't they, in that kind of 80s time? They're, obviously, you know, I mentioned the Smiths, but there was a lot of kind of indie pop that had happened. There was also kind of rock. There was a production quality, that Trevor Horn production which had that huge kind of, um, it sounds awful now, dated quality, doesn't it? The drum sound, which is not easy. So, um, yeah. yes. That, that, that drum sound on my demos that I cringe at when I hear it. Anyway, uh, yeah, this is, we did really, really well with, with Sammy's Town. We got a hit in Australia with Farsight of Crazy. 
We did a wonderful tour of, of Europe that year, 86, sellout tour. UK was always rocky with Wall of Voodoo, with me fronting it. They loved, the UK loved Stan's version of Wall of Voodoo, and justifiably so. They were not taken with me. I think I was a little too polite. I should have been a little bit more of an a-hole. But, uh, no, the press in the UK was, was really, really hard on Wall of Voodoo. Uh, my version of Wall of Voodoo, because they just love Stan. Um, but we still did a, a, a good tour of the UK uh, a couple of times, three times. Uh, we always had a great time playing in the UK. It's just that the press was a little uh, less than enthusiastic, shall we say. Yes. That's all right. You know, for this, we are soldiers. You know, you, you, you don't step into the ring not expecting to get your ass kicked once or twice. So, um, so happy... Sammy's Town was great, really, really great. And then uh, the re reaction was great. We had a hit. We couldn't wait to get into the studio and record. And then we had Conrad Plank, who had recorded with uh, Bowie and, um, oh, God, I can't remember the band. You're going to laugh when I can't remember them. Midger. Who's Midger's band? Oh, Ultravox. Ultravox. He worked with Ultravox. He loved us. He wanted us to go to Cologne, Germany at Cologne, Germany, and record at his, at his farm. We loved him. He came out to the States. He loved our, our, what we were working on. Let's go to Germany and record the next record. And then IRS Records didn't want to pay him. You know, Conrad Planck said, yeah, here's my fee. They're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand how we do things at IRS Records. Uh, you're going to get a percentage of the record. He goes, uh, no, that's not how I work things. And so it began to this IRS just being the cheap, small-time label that they were, that slowed everything down. Conrad Plank couldn't do the record, that we couldn't come to, the record company and them couldn't come to an agreement. So time went on and we began to lose our focus, really began to lose our focus after getting home from the tour. So we couldn't work with Conrad, so the next one they wanted to work with was Mark and Chaz really wanted to work with Richard Masta, who had done Call of the West. Well, Richard wasn't available until like February of the next year. So it was like eight, nine, ten months went by between our last tour, the Sammystown tour, the success of the Sammystown tour, and maybe six months, seven months before we even got back into the studio. And I think by that point, we had lost our focus and had lost the, uh, um, the natural ability that is just how good a band, when you, when you get off the road, you really play really well. You've been playing yeah. every night for six months. Now you're kind of all over. So when we got in with Richard, Richard, one of the first things he said to us, he goes, can I ask you guys a question? We said, listen, everybody is doing that cowboy stuff, that Western stuff that you guys really, really popularized. Everybody is doing that now. There's a hundred cowboy bands in the UK doing this. It's time you guys start changing, thinking about changing your sound. And to us, it's like, well, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Let's just, let's, let's mix it up a little bit. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's try a little bit more. And to me, that's that in retrospect, we should have just done what we did best. And so I felt it was an uneven record. It was, I was not at my best. Um, and, you know, sometimes you just, you know, Richard did a great job producing it. 
Uh, there were some troubles in the band, inner, inner band problems, drugs, etc. Um, and we did as best as we could. And there's some, and so on this, just so you know, this live record that we're putting out is a live version of the Happy Planet tour that we did. And I'm really, really amazed at how good it sounds. And that's the new sounds we are working on, on certain songs were actually a really lovely direction for Wall of Voodoo to be hitting, heading in. So in retrospect, I hear certain songs like Hollywood the Second Time and Chains of Luck, uh, Lights Go Out, going, wow, that really is, that really was smart of Richard. This really, really, really sounds good. So live and learn. Yes, blimey. So then you, you know, that's the that's the kind of that chapter. And then you'll you sort of slip straight into another band very quickly, don't you? I do. Do you? No, you 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 do you enter the world of Concrete Blonde? Oh, I'm not in Concrete Blonde. I'm I'm Concrete Blonde opened for us and then they covered uh Johnette covered one of my songs and then we began we did some tours together. We worked very closely together, but I was never, no, God, no, never a part of the band. I would get on stage. When we toured together, she'd call me on stage to play piano on uh, Still in Hollywood and whatnot. We did some solo acoustic tours, which were just amazing. Uh, but no, I never joined the band. I you went didn't. solo. I did a number of solo records and uh, then branched out into musical comedy in the 90s. I wrote a... Uh, uh, comic rock operetta called White Trash Wins Lotto, which is a Gilbert and Sullivan-esque, I call it Gilbert, Gilbert and Hooligan-esque uh, adaptation of the Guns N' Roses story. So uh, that got me my biggest record deal ever, and everything looked like it was really good. I got a Broadway deal, and then everything fell apart. Blimey. Blimey. So 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 crikey that's so just just on that concrete blonde did you you which features that song tomorrow wendy yeah is this a song that jeanette writes or you write you write that okay i wrote that uh in 1989 i did three or four other versions of the song and they were not right. They just were not telling the story correctly. And I just kept working and it turned out to be the simpler, the better. And like I, I've, I've said elsewhere, it took me uh, four years and 15 minutes to write. It just all came out in 15 minutes one night. Um, and then I did a version of it for a uh, anticipated uh, Wall of Voodoo 4 record, a follow-up to... Uh, the live in Australia record. I wanted to do one more record with Voodoo, but by that point they had they had changed their mind. But I wrote it for Wall of Voodoo, and listening back to it a few months later, I thought, no, this is too fast. It needs to be slowed down. And I thought, you know, it would be really great is to get Johnette on this and have slow it down and have her sing the chorus. So I gave her a tape. I said, Johnette, would you sing this song? And she listened to it. She goes, hey, this is great. I, you don't need to recut this. I said, no, I, I need to recut it. I have a different arrangement. So uh, I did a different arrangement. I called her into the studio. And uh, we sang the song standing next to each other side by side. And I had no idea what to expect. And when she sang that chorus, I just, I just like stood next to her like with my jaw all in, uh, on the floor. 
just to see a singer uh, um, uh, transform your song that way and just turn it from a good song to something absolutely uh, inspiring, just unbelievable moment for me. If there's, you know, the 20 moments you want to live again in, in the world, it would be that moment the first time I ever heard Johnette sing the chorus to Tomorrow, Wendy. Yes, absolutely. That was, that was put on my solo record. And uh, she then called me up and said she was working on a, a new record in London and she wants to do Tomorrow, Wendy. I said, absolutely, please. And so she did. So I think my, my version came out first, but it was on a small label and, and, and a select few were aware of it. It, it got a lot of airplay in, in Australia. But she's known for, you know, that song is known for her version of it on the on the bloodletting record, justifiably so. So but that's Yeah, so lyrically, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? And this is about a person you know dying of AIDS. Yes, this is a, a, a prostitute in my home area who uh, chose to chose suicide rather than die by AIDS. Uh, you know, to me, she represented uh, all the lost hopes of this industrial uh, landscape where people used to come here and start their lives over and build a life for themselves. Now the steel mills were all closing. Um, you know, my original vision of the song was to do one side of a record telling that story and have each member of Wall of Voodoo sing a different verse and tell a different aspect of the story of this uh, uh, close down this shut down steel mill town where these people absolutely have absolutely no use anymore you know the, in, the industry has no use for you see you later and despair sits in, sets in and drugs set in and um so there was that aspect of it um but you know i was not the writer to do that unfortunately and i just condensed it as much as i could into three verses and just told the story in a telegraphic form. Yes. And that, that, that last verse you do, the one I told the priest, don't plan on any second coming. Did you, did you write that in one angry burst? Was that kind of just one angry burst? Like I said, uh, four years and 15 minutes. I remember I was sitting down on the floor in my bedroom. It was, I wrote that and I got like, I'm not a guy who believes in ghosts, but like the room got really cold when I wrote that. So, you know, and as, as a former Catholic, that, you know, that line is very hard for me to sing sometimes. You know, not hard, but it's, you know, it, it challenges me spiritually. But that's how somebody, you know, and I got a lot of letters from Christian, you know, devout Christians, you know, chastising me for that line. And I, I'm sorry, that's just how people who despair think that is that is an accurate depiction of despair you know i'm not i'm not here banging on a bible i'm just trying to prov provide an accurate description of somebody at the end of of the line somebody who has absolutely no solutions no more options yes and and Jeanette does does deliver it in that kind of spoken word way so stunningly you know it's just like you know her voice and her spirit feels like it's also coming to the end of her so um yeah it's one of the great 
greatest songs ever, I think. So. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> it is. No, it's one of those absolutely stunning. But it's it's great hearing different versions. But, yeah, she she does have a vocal that um, does lend itself, doesn't it? So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And like I said, the first time I ever, I mean, I was the first one ever to hear that, me and the engineer. And it was just like, oh, my God. Oh, jeez. You know, I'm just, I was singing and like, only God said, you know, with my little skinny little voice. But when she sang it, it's like, oh my God, this is yes. just transform this. It's, it's amazing. So did you, you just briefly whiz through the 90s, actually, just before then. So what, so you're now knowing, not no longer in a band, not wanting to be in a rock band, and you, but you're going to be in music. So you're going to sort of become part of a, a, a little bit of a different entertainment musicals. Well, you know, um, this all grew out of me opening for Johnette in Concrete Blonde. When I opened for them, um, I didn't have a band. I toured Australia with them. I did some shows on the East Coast, I mean, on the West Coast here with them. And I just had me and a piano. And me sitting behind the piano was, I felt absolutely at home, just at home and comfortable. I had something to do. I could talk to the audience. I could then sing. I could talk to the audience. It was a natural. I just went, whoa, this is really, really, this is, this is, this is an, this is an eye-opening experience for me because I'd been standing in front of bands since I've been in high school, but nothing felt as good as sitting behind a piano and talking to an audience. I, I, I'm not afraid to talk to, to people like that. As, yes. long as, I'm, as long as I'm on stage and in the spotlight and highly paid, I can talk to anybody. Anyway, <laughs> um, so that got my, 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 got me thinking. And then somewhere after Concrete, after the Bloodletting Tour, John had said, hey, let's go, let's do an acoustic tour of the West Coast, you, me, and Jeff Trott. Jeff Trott is a songwriter. Uh, who works with Cheryl Crow now. I've known Jeff since San Francisco, punk rock days. Let's you, me, and Jeff go on the road and just do an acoustic tour. She goes, you can start the show, and then I'll come out, and then you, the three of us will end the show. It went great. So we did this show, me behind a piano, John behind acoustic guitar with Jeff accompanying her, and then I would start the show. Uh, we'd do Tomorrow Wendy, and then I'd sort of hand the show over to her. Then she would do a number of songs, her and Jeff, on stage acoustically. And then she'd call me back on stage. And then David Mayhem just ensued. It became this like comedy thing. I mean, we sang our songs, but we would start doing banter. And one thing leads to another and the audience is laughing and we're laughing. And it just created this sort of madness in the third act of this show. And that led me to believe and, and know that this is what I want to steer towards. This is the kind of thing I want to steer towards. I want to be able to sing really serious stuff. I also want to, you know, if it needs a little bit of uh, 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 humor, I can go there and I need to work with people who can make that transition and never, you know, and do it effortlessly, which is really, really hard, really, really difficult. Because uh, you could be silly and funny on stage and you can be really, really serious. But to try to do both is 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 a great, challenging, tightrope act, which I really loved challenging myself that way. So after this, I began to put together a band with uh, over time with uh, uh, 
a flautist, bass player, guitarist. She was a, a great singer and got another singer and a male singer and a drummer. And I began putting this together. I got a, I got a, 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 a residency at a club called Largo and we would just perform some my stuff and all the people I was with, I could throw something at them and they would roll with it and get a laugh or do it seriously. And it just built and built and built. And one of the things I had in my coat pocket uh, that I'd been writing for just for fun was this idea of an Axl Rose musical, a Gilbert and Sullivan-esque Axl Rose musical or just an Axl Rose musical. Because at the time, it's like, what's going to happen with Axl? He's vanished. Where's Axl? So, and this would be stuff I would just throw out there to kind of refresh the set and get people to laugh and then go back and do my normal stuff. So I taught this to the band. I had my male singer play Axel because he came from a very theatrical background. I had the two girls singing harmonies and played it straight. You know, you always play comedy straight. You don't play it silly. Mm. And I did two songs from this quote unquote musical I was working on. I would just throw it out to the audience. They say, hey, you know, I have this idea for a musical. And the response was really shocking, really, really loud. People really loved it. So I kept doing it. You know, every night I would, every time I do the show, I throw out these two songs and people, and suddenly I'm seeing that the audience is getting bigger and bigger. Word is getting out. And we would start doing this musical bit and you would hear in the audience, people going, here it is. Here's what I told you about. Mm. So the fuck I, I wrote another song because suddenly I, it becomes this not so much about Axel, but a way to kind of attack the music industry. I put Axel Rose in the middle of this music industry and I'm suddenly writing all this critical, funny, searing indictments about A&R representatives, about sleazy managers, about, about this, about that, about drugs, about this. And suddenly the audience is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. So now I'm at Largo, which is also a home for a lot of stand-up comedians, a lot of young stand-up comedians. And I would watch these comedians do their routine and thinking, that guy would make a really good sleazy manager. And that guy would make a really, really good scumbag music, music executive. And that guy would make a really good insect-like lawyer. And I have this song for them to sing. And then we'd get together and they could actually, one guy could actually sing really well. And they loved it. And so I, now I got three comedians up there playing Everything from sleazy music, uh, sleazy music biz people to effing bellhops. So they're just changing costumes in this, and it's it's fantastic. And the audience is growing and growing and growing. And then suddenly, Associated Press picks up on the story about this Axl Rose musical in L.A. and they put it on the wire just for filler. Right. You following me? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Just for filler, like, hey, and suddenly everybody around the world picks up on us like, hey, if you ever wondered what happens to Axl Rose, it seems like somebody in L.A. has written a musical about him. And now suddenly all this attention is coming in. And this was David. This is just a joke. This is beginning to be the joke that ate my life. HBO, 
is coming. They invite me to the Aspen Comedy Festival. Our, our American TV host Conan O'Brien sees me, said, if you're ever in New York, call me. I'll put you guys on the show. I get a $1.1 million record deal from Universal because at the time, the president of Universal was my old president from IRS Records, Jay Boberg, and he always wanted to be involved in a musical. And this is, this is just, and it's, it's, I'm drawing on the other, I forgot to mention the other musical um, uh, revelation in my life was, was all too late exposure to Gilbert and Sullivan during right. Wall of while during Wall of Voodoo, I'm sorry. Am I boring you with this? Shit? No, 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 no. Because I've I've, I've 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 seen quite a few Gilbert and Sullivan productions. During Wall of Voodoo, during Wall of Voodoo, some girl from a girl I know from the record company gave me. She goes, "Hey, here's some here's some. I'm in the classical music department. Here, listen to this stuff." She gave me all these classical stuff, and I never really paid attention to it. And she gave me this recording of uh, uh, the Mikado uh, that starred uh, Eric Idle. And Eric Idle wrote, rewrote the lyrics as traditional to do for I've Got a Little List. And they were really mean. I mean, all of Gilbert's lyrics are very mean. And I remember hearing this going, these lyrics, all these lyrics, Gilbert's lyrics, uh, 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 um, Eric Idle's, you know, new adapted lyrics to I Got a List are also cruelly accurate towards, towards human nature just absolutely heartlessly accurate towards human nature. And yet Sullivan's music is just beautiful and accessible. Again, I think, I think Sullivan uh, 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 didn't realize that, you know, he's not the next Verity. He's not the next Mozart. He's the next, he's, you know, him and Gilbert were, were the, the Lennon McCartney of their era, but I don't think they had anywhere to put that. You know, you didn't have that kind of a market. Anyway, I'm blabbing. So I remember listening to that over and over again. I'm going, thinking, God, if only somebody could write modern music like this, um, boy, wouldn't that be great? Well, here I am, you know, ten years later, doing my my uneducated best to to pull in influences uh, uh, from from Gilbert and Sullivan, from Verdi, from Mozart, uh, and adding that to this musical. Because what I wanted to do is I wanted the music to always, the lessons I learned from Mozart and, and, and Gilbert and Sullivan is you can be funny, but always let the music be serious. Always let the music be, have the music be as beautiful as it can possibly be. Other than that, it's just silly crap. Yeah. So I then, you know, in my research uh, for the Guns N' Roses story, I came across, across a book by Danny Sugarman, who wrote Nobody Gets Out of Here Alive. And this book was called Appetite for Destruction. And it's Danny Sugarman's uh, amateur Jungian take on Axl Rose being the modern incarnation of Dionysius. And I went, this is just fantastic. This turns rock star into an operatic god. It's, you know, it's absurdly funny, this book of his, like, you know, really taking Ax Axl Rose as this teetering god that teeters between oblivion and this. And, you know, it was written in 1986. So I 
the 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 uh, uh, attitude of act of this musical gets more and more serious as it as it as it goes on. At least musically, it becomes it's still very funny, but becomes very operatic. So that was great. Got a Broadway deal. Couldn't close it. Jay Boberg got fired. Uh, they didn't like. Uh, we couldn't settle a deal with Broadway. The record company pulled out its uh, support in nineteen two thousand one, and uh, back to oblivion I go. Oh, and here I am today. Gee, oh. that's so close. And that was that was kind of the moment. Yeah, that was great. It was, and it was just working with the cast of fifteen people from the. You know, we came from nowhere. It wasn't like we thought. I'm going to go workshop this. It's just like we put it out. I put it up in a club. We, we, we put it in front of an audience. We got the laughs. We hit our marks. And that was the great thing with working with the comedians as opposed to working with actors. Comedians always want to get the laugh and get there quick. Actors like to take their time and eat a lot of stage time and emote. Comedians playing, playing the a-hole record company executive would always get to the point and I would just tell them, Here's the, here are the five points I need you to make. This, 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 this. And so the musical basically is setting up, setting up a song and delivering it, setting up a song, delivering it, setting it up with me narrating, which is basically an outgrowth, outgrowth of my tour with Johnette, of just standing and sitting in front of an audience and talking. So that's where that all comes from. Pause. Blimey, that's uh, that's quite something. Because in in that time, you also do these two solo albums, don't you? The last one being "Sins of Our Father." So that no, those those pre- those precede this. Uh, "Sins of Our Fathers." Uh, Upon my wicked son was nineteen ninety one, and "Sins of Our Fathers" I think was nineteen ninety five, and then I get the the residency at Largo like nineteen ninety six. I don't have a record deal, uh, and then I start just performing these songs and then uh, the musical kind of takes over. And next thing I know, I got a big record deal with universal and I'm filling the Roxy theater here in LA and have a cast of 15 people and costumes and lots of work. So, so then you've written books, but then have you then did music then become your kind of side hustle? And then you just took another career turn change. No, music has always been my my thing. It's what I do now. I'm, you know, I work from home. I'm, I'm not touring right now. I'm not playing out right now. But I, you know, live frugally and create music, and that's that's what I do. And that not everybody not everybody knows about it, but you know, it's okay. That's fine. I'm happy. I'm so very the pro- very. So the project that is coming out, the Lost Tapes, Volume yes. One. So where is this, and how does this sort of fit with the narrative? Well, there's another project coming out in April, but I don't want to talk about that right now. But what I did do is I digitized uh, a bunch of old tapes and a a bunch of old ADATs and a bunch of old recordings and uh, for release sometimes, possibly. And so I was having coffee with Chaz T. Gray from Wall of Voodoo, and we we're just, you know, catching up. And um, I told him about, yeah, I digitized this stuff and, you know, took it to this place, met this guy who did this and blah, 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 and went through the whole process of 
digitizing tapes and you know you, you know about baking tapes right yes i've heard about this it's, it's not putting them in an oven but it uh, is well it yes <laughs> but quite did not not hours, domestic 12 hours at 130 30 degrees fahrenheit i don't know what what that is in celsius but 130 degrees fahrenheit for 12 hours because you know why right no i don't the secret to classic rock david is that it was all those old tapes were coated in whale oil. How you like that one? Give peace a chance. Huh? They were all coated in whale oil. And in 1973, the Endangered Species Act uh, uh, was passed here in the United States, and whale oil was removed from the process of making manufacturing tapes. What happens then? Everything was fine. They still recorded. Everything was great. But what happens is 10 years later, they decide to play some. Well, let's play some of those old tapes. And without whale oil, they absorb moisture and all the gunk in the air where they've been stored. So now you have to burn off all that gunk that has accumulated. And I don't know how they figured this out, but you have to keep a tape in a in a even even temperatured oven at 130 degrees Fahrenheit for 12 hours, and it burns off all that, cooks off all that crap, and you can play the tapes again. So I was explaining all this to Chaz T. Gray, and Chaz T. Gray just absently said, huh, that's interesting. I wonder what you, if you could do that with all those tapes I got in my garage. I said, what tapes do you have in your garage? He goes, I got all the tapes. You guys have got all those live albums we recorded. I got all the demos we did. I have everything. I said, yes let's go look at these and so we went to his garage and opened up a uh, uh, uh one of the road cases and there is what you see on the album cover one of the road cases was filled with all of the toys that Chaz T. gray bought while he was touring all those years with wall of voodoo both wall of voodoo one and wall of voodoo two he just threw them into a road case and then put the tapes in there and the first thing i did is i opened that box up saw all those old busted forgotten toys with a wall of voodoo live tape right there and i said don't touch a thing and i took that picture and that's the album cover so we went through this and there are just a plethora of uh eight track demos from 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 after from uh what i call wall of two dudes which is just mark and Chaz. after stan left they did demos they're the early demos that i did and then we have this live recording that we did in 1987. Those tapes were baked. Uh, we recorded the, we did this at the um, historical Ocean Way uh, recording studios in, in LA. I think we were the last uh, paying customers off the street there. They have now shut their doors. And the guy who did it, his name is Bill Smith. He worked on the Concrete Blonde record. He's also a uh, uh, noted engineer and producer and he, called us in and played us some rough mixes. And we said, would you mix this? Cause they sounded great. And he did. And we're going to be offering them on site on, on uh, for sale on the 15th at uh, wallavoodoo2.com. Uh, and so these are uh, the first record we're going to put out is the live recordings. It shows Mark Moreland. What was so astounding was to hear Mark Moreland when he was alive playing live on stage at that very moment 
his tone is so beautiful and it's it's just incredible to hear him play he ne- i never heard one mistake i'm making mistakes all over the place he's just a virtuoso so we said this has to get out there as a, as a tribute to mark god rest his soul so yes. that's what we're doing and did you run it by the other members of the band? Did, did Bruce and everybody say, yes, this is a great idea? No, it's, it's Chaz's gift. Chaz, Chaz spearheaded this. He wants this to be a gift to Mark's widow, Freddie Moreland, Mark's mother, Bonnie, and Bruce. And so we just, we're, that's why I said we want to keep it secret. Oh, so God, yeah, Jesus, yes, absolutely, yes. On the 15th, we want to say, here's our gift to you. Our, our tribute to your 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 husband and your son and your brother. So that's why I'm saying, yeah, just, yeah, God, absolutely, no, that's that, that's amazing. That's such a nice thing to do. That must just be so so exciting. It was such a, a unbelievable tragic loss to lose him. He was so young. <sighs> you know, yes. it's like we're saying. It's like we're all kind of used to. We're at that age now where everybody's passing away, but. Anyway, yeah, no, no, it's 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 um, yeah. th- th- those those ones were unusual when they because you know it wasn't much you know when you had that end of year, you know oh who died it was like a couple but now it started to sort of become a bit more like a tsunami really, but um yeah my god that's amazing so then after this this release in mid November do you have other releases planned to to look at the is it basically something that i've noticed archiving has archiving become a big part of your life and the band and feeling like yeah i guess so at your at this age you know i'm almost 70 um the amount of work we put into wall of voodoo or the amount of work i put into everything that i've ever you know composed recently i put out a, a collection of uh, songs that I've, been, I've written, I think it goes all the way back to when I was 20. Um, it was called One Plus One Equals Three. I had, was thinking of just the amount of time a songwriter puts into a song, not only in composing it, but rehearsing it and playing in front of an audience. And you make, you know, it's kind of a shame to let all that time just go unheard. And I felt I needed, uh, without wanting to sound too uh, L.A. airhead, I wanted to honor the commitment I had made to those songs. Uh, they needed to be heard, whether it's heard by 20 people or, you know, 200, who knows. Uh, I felt that that was the important thing, is that they have to, they have to be heard. They have to be out in the air. And then my commitment to them is done. And as a lifetime as a, of a songwriter, there are so many songs out there. And I feel the same way with Voodoo. We've, we put so much work into this and uh, there was so much, uh, so many wonderful times, so much heartbreak, so many challenges that, you know, you want to honor the time you put into this large chunk of your life. So archiving, uh, just, this, just releasing it and, and letting it, letting it, setting it free as it were now that sounds really la but it's the truth yeah no absolutely no i mean i i totally agree because i think you know especially with lockdown but also the access to the internet has made people interested curious have it much more accessible and and, you know in our day it was such a pain in the 
bum to um, find stuff and then buy stuff because it was, all seemed expensive. Whereas now, you know, kids are sort of discovering a lot of this music for the first time. The thing is, is what we've noticed is a lot of what's out there, you know, that, that we never released, you know, demos and this and that sound like crap. I mean, they're, they're uh, copies of copies of copies and God knows where the original copy came from. So we're like, well, if you're going to be listening to this stuff, you might as well listen to it mixed really well and, and presented really well. And, you know, so you could get a, a chance to really hear what it was supposed to sound like, not a copy of somebody's demo off a cassette from 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So that's the other thing is that if you're going to be listening to the stuff that we didn't release, listen to something that sounds good. That's the way it's supposed to be. Yes. And then yeah. you had an album out last year as well, didn't you? One and one make three. Yeah. So this yeah. is all your forgotten, abandoned, unfinished songs. Again, you wanted to put that out. I have to say the album cover is beautiful. Thank but, you. Um, <laughs> it's a yeah. classy little number, isn't it? That's uh, the work of my uh, uh, art director, Jesse Winch, who's also doing this voodoo record. Yeah. Right. Yes. So this was a was this a, a project that you started in lockdown and felt like you just wanted to get that all out there as well? Kind of happened simultaneously. It'd been something that I'd been thinking about. I, I was sitting down to write some songs and I went, take a break. You got all, you know, and I could hear all these other songs going, what about me? what am i chop liver put me out i go okay okay let's go so it kind of happened at the same time but because you know as as i'm sure you've heard from many musicians lockdown wasn't that big of a ordeal here my wife is a writer i'm a musician we wake up she goes in her office and writes i wake up i go in the studio and i write or compose and record and that's pretty much life so when lockdown happened it's like oh okay well another day I was yes. very, didn't, I don't know how it was for you, but it was, it was, shape. no, it didn't, it was, it was fine, actually, in a lot yeah. of ways. It was actually, you know, it was a little bit, it was frustrating with the government, but that's a whole nother story. But uh, <laughs> let's not worry about that. But so, so um, your next year, as as we develop this, this kind of idea of our decade, what, what have you got planned for that? You know, what, what have you got worked, working on for 2024? I got a lot I'm working on for 2024, but David, at this point, I, don't, I really don't want to talk about it. No, you don't want to don't want to jinx it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I really don't want to jinx it, but yeah. it's, it's it's really good. It's really really good, but I don't want to jinx it. No, don't jinx it. Don't jinx it. Are you? I mean, because you've you've worked with so many amazing people. Do you still keep a little bit of contact with quite a lot of your? No, I, uh, you mean like Johnette or? Yeah, people who are. He's out in the desert now, and I kind of let life take care of itself at this point. Um, you know, where I live, it's impossible for any, it takes, I'm like almost two hours outside of LA right now. So I'm, you know, the internet takes care of stuff, but I, I really don't, I, I stay pretty close with, with uh, the voodoos. I'm close with Chaz. I'm close with Ned. I see Bruce now and then. It's always really good. Um, but no, I don't really see a lot of people I work with. Their lives have gone in one direction. Mine has gone in another. But Yes. These things happen, don't they? These yeah. Happen. And I'm kind of a hermit. 
I'm, I'm really good on stage and really friendly on stage, but one-on-one I'm, I'm more of a small dinner party kind of guy. I don't know what kind of guy you are, but I, you know, five people at dinner is really a wonderful night. Parties and clubs. <laughs> no, no, this is no, no. I think, I think that we all get there. Don't we? In the end, we just think, no, that's my idea of hell. I mean, yeah. just be just try, trying to be trying to have a conversation and being interrupted and then thinking, what's the point? Yeah. I've and, just you got... know, it's great when you're 20 and you're trying to get laid or whatever it is that you're trying to do. But, you know, now that you're almost 70 and I don't want to hang out with 70 year olds. I don't want to talk about grandkids. I don't have any grandkids. I don't have any kids. I mean, that's my wife and I are the only people, one of the few people we know who don't have kids and we're like, you know, so it's kind of weird. No, but absolutely. So, Luke, just last question. If you could have whispered something to your, like, 16-year-old self starting out, is there anything in particular that you might have gone, yeah, I would have mentioned that or I'd have directed them slightly in that? They might have ignored you, but I just wondered if there was any kind of little moment you think, yeah, that would be quite a, quite a good thing to yeah, be. I would have said, um, I would have told my, my 16-year-old self to practice more. I would have told my 16-year-old to study, really study uh, uh, songwriting surgically, really analytically, and ask yourself, this isn't magic that's happening. This is somebody putting this together brick at a time. So study each one of those bricks in this and how they're doing that. Really, don't just learn as you go along, but really study the masters. Um, Because, you know, at 16... David, you're kind of like, yeah, it's great. You go in the studio and the magic happens. It's like, no, that's not how, you know. And as a songwriter, I'm a Polinarian. I'm not Dionysian. Mm-hmm. I'm step at a time. I'm not like when it, the mood hits, I go looking for the mood. Uh, but yeah, practice. Uh, I would have more to say to my college self, which is you are at a theater arts school. Don't take music courses. You don't need to take music courses. Your brain doesn't work that way. You're never going to learn how to read music. Don't start now. What I would suggest you do is take theater history, elocution, and movement. Take those classes. And then I would, then when you're done with those classes, go over to the art department and learn basic life drawing. That's all you got to do. Everything else your mind seems to take care of itself. You're a good reader. You have a love for history. Uh, you have a love for poetry but learn movement, elocution, theater history, uh, stagecraft, just the basic, just the elements, just the basics. And uh, don't, don't study, don't go to the music department. You're wasting your time there. And I really was. It was just, you know, I don't know how to read music and trying to learn how to do it in college, forget it. You know, my brain just, my brain wants to learn by doing. Yes. God damn. God, this those, those are the, uh, uh, oh, and, uh, you know, stay away from girls with drug and drinking problems. Yes, just people generally. They're fun. They're a lot of fun. But, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and guys, yeah. guys, guys with drinking and drug problems. So you probably won't be in a band. Anyway. Yes. Well, look, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. And I'll, um, I won't I will put anything out until after the 15th, but um, I will check before as well, just to make sure that that's all cool with you. You ask wonderful questions, David. Thank well, you so Well, no, much. thank you for your time. That's amazing. And yeah. um, 
If you want to do this again when I have another release out, uh, the big release, I'll let you know. Yes. You have a brief chat. You know, we don't have to do two hours. It's been two and a half hours. <laughs> have you ever thought of going? Have you ever thought of going into psychiatry? Because you would make a wonderful psychiatrist. You get people to talk. <laughs> yes. No. But um, no. But thank you ever so much. But yeah. So next project, I'll keep an eye and keep an ear out for your next work. But anyway, look. Have a lovely day, and thank you ever so much. Thank you. Take care. Have a lovely day. I'm going to bed. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, as you can gather, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to Andy for giving me the time for that interview um, to tell about his life and also the new project with the Wall of Voodoo, The Lost Tapes, Volume 1, which is available from all good streaming websites and much, much more. This is the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, all these... Interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.